Welcome to Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. I saw and heard so much as a child growing up with hate and injustice against black people. I learned to put my trust in God and to seek Him as my strength. Long ago, I set my mind to be a free person and not to give in to fear. I always felt that it was my right to defend myself if I could. I have learned over the years that when one's mind is made up, this diminishes fear. Knowing what must be done does away with fear. That was Robin Miles narrating Reflections by Rosa Parks. If you listen to audiobooks, then you know some of the many voices of Robin Miles. She's an award-winning actor who's narrated hundreds of audiobooks. She's won a score of earphone awards and has been named a Golden Voice Narrator by Audiophile Magazine. She's a multiple Audie winner and is a member of Audible's Narrator Hall of Fame. Robin came to acting through musical theater, earning a BA in theater studies from Yale University and an MFA in acting from the Yale School of Drama. Robin Miles' theater training, her own love of reading, and a childhood spent in a New Jersey town filled with immigrants proved to be an irresistible combination behind the mic. Robin combines a thoughtful and subtle reading with a chameleon-like ability to recreate a wide array of accents from around the country and around the world, connecting with the listener quite intimately, all in service to the text. It's an acrobatic feat, a little bit like shape-shifting. She has talents to spare, but she also has a reputation for disciplined preparation. So I began my conversation with Robin Miles by asking her how she approached each new audiobook. You know, it's interesting. I do follow probably the, the same blueprint. I read the book through one time with as few distractions as I can manage. I oftentimes will not read prep a book on a subway just because it's too choppy an experience. But I'll read it through, and as I'm reading, I make notes. I prep on an iPad, so I'm using colors to underline characteristics. I'm using highlighter when I'm highlighting my main characters. Any words, I, I don't know what that means, or I don't know how to pronounce that, I'll highlight in yellow. But I go through the whole book, and I make a map for myself. If it's a, a book with incredibly long thoughts, i.e., you know, sentence length that's four to six lines long average, I might mark where I need to breathe. If there are two ideas that are contrasted in a paragraph, just as I'm reading, I'm reading along, I'll just stop, bring up the tool, underline the first element that's mentioned, and then I'll underline the second one so that I know I'm about to contrast this with something coming up so that I don't lose the thread of that. If for some reason there are date anchors in it, you know, by 1911, such and such and such and such. But by 1913, I'll, I'll underline the date so I don't lose the progression through the material. I make notes in the margin. So if it's a passage of, you know, uh, dialogue, she's speaking, 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 speaking. She whispered. <laughs> what typically happens is if you don't mark it, you read it without whispering and you get to the end and she whispered, oh, darn, now I, gotta go, now I gotta go back and do it again. So what I started doing was giving myself clues to those little adverb phrases oftentimes. You know, she said wistfully, so I have to write 
wistfully at the first word so that I know that emotionally that's what's going on. It's so helpful for the actor because the more you stop when you've made mistakes, the more it kind of just in a minuscule way, but still it can throw you out of the text. And I want to stay, as jazz musician would say, in the pocket. I want to stay in the pocket for as long as I can with a, as few interruptions as I can manage. There's such a subtlety to your narration. But boy, when you do an accent, you nail it like Annie John by Jamaica Kincaid, which is one of my absolute favorite books in the world. And wow. I was really nervous to listen to it because I knew that book so well. And right. I had a voice in my head, and there's a way I was really comfortable with the voice I had, and what you know, and how would this work when I listened? And it mm -hmm. took me like ten seconds, and I was into your narration of that book. Oh, I am so thrilled to hear that. I did take a risk because the different islands in the Caribbean are not all the same in terms of their sound. They're actually quite different, and. Jamaican is probably the one that Americans know best. And my family's from Jamaica, so that makes it a little bit easier for me. But Antiguan has this wonderful quality of, it's like this, the Scottish influence on the speech is still audible. And, and I knew that, but I thought, well, how am I going to do that without it jarring the American ear? You, know, you have to do it within a, a, a small range. Sometimes people jump into accents and they want to do them absolutely perfect to the language, and then we lose the sense, you know? And so there's always a little bit of a balance that one must do. And so I listened to Alfred Pragnell, who's an Antiguan storyteller, and I just spent time listening to his storytelling. And then I went, okay, let me use this as the basis, but then soften it, and I'll dilute that a little bit. And the only reason why I think I, I felt okay doing it was because I could speak at length without feeling like I was working at it. Because I think people can hear it when you're working at it. And I don't want to give anybody that experience. I think it throws them out of it. I loved very much, and so used to torment until she cried, a girl named Sonia. She was smaller than I, even though she was almost two years older. And she was a dunce, the first real dunce I had ever met. She was such a dunce that sometimes she could not remember the spelling of her own name. I would try to get to school early and give her my homework so that she could copy it, and in class I would pass her the answers to sums. My friends ignored her, and whenever I mentioned her name in a favorable way, they would twist up their lips and make a sound to show their disdain. I thought her beautiful, and I would say so. You do a lot of African-American history. Yes, I do. And mm. from the well-known, like, a Rosa Parks to things that are not as well-known, like Hidden Figures, for example. Right. With Rosa Parks, her book Reflections by Rosa Parks. Right. When you decided you were going to to narrate that book, since she is so much an icon, I could imagine taking that on with a certain amount of trepidation. You know what it was for me? I don't remember how many years ago I narrated At the Dark End of the Street by Danielle McGuire, which was about basically the history of rape 
and black women in the South. And what I discovered in the first chapter was that Rosa Parks was an investigator for the NAACP. She investigated the backstory of women who came forward to press their rape cases. And we all think of her as the lady who was tired and sat down on the bus. She was a lot more than that. And she served the civil rights movement by making a choice to allow herself, in a sense, to be that icon, to have her case be the one that was used because she was not the only woman who sat down on a bus and was arrested. But she was sort of the perfect spokesperson. And I thought, well, years later, what would that person be like? And I have her words here. She has so, so much to distill, to, to transfer to us as wisdom. And so I just put myself in that position and then went with it, whatever the things she wanted to say. And I do think she wanted to make it accessible to as many people as possible. She didn't over-intellectualize. She doesn't throw around, you know, a bunch of dictionary words that you got to go look up. She wanted to get back to the simple underpinnings of humanity. We're human and we need to be human with each other. And I found that absolutely relatable. Absolutely relatable. When I sat down on the bus the day I was arrested, I was thinking of going home. I had made up my mind quickly about what it was that I had to do, what I felt was right to do. I did not think of being physically tired or fearful. After so many years of oppression and being a victim of the mistreatment that my people had suffered, not giving up my seat and whatever I had to face after not giving it up was not important. I did not feel any fear at sitting in the seat I was sitting in, all I felt was tired. Tired of being pushed around, tired of seeing the bad treatment and disrespect of children, women and men, just because of the color of their skin. Tired of the Jim Crow laws, tired of being oppressed. I was just plain tired. I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. God did away with all my fear. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down. I refused to move. I don't know what I expected when mm -hmm. I listened to the book, but I know that I felt as though I was sitting down with an older woman who's had this rich life with difficulties and really has come out the other side, mm -hmm. and I felt like, we were sitting down on a front porch, each having a glass of sweet tea, and she was just telling me about it. I got that feeling, too, and I didn't want it to be any more complicated than that. Just keep it accessible. Me and you sitting here, as I, I always tell my students, you know what you need to do is you need to think you're in an Irish pub. It's got to be an Irish pub. We each have our brew. We're sitting there and we're talking. That's an audiobook. You know, at least in a lot of the cases. Now, there's some that are, you know, require a different scenario, but... But um, you also had just the faintest bit mm -hmm. of a Southern accent. The faintest, it was more a gesture. That is what I live in, gestures, because oftentimes I don't think we need more. And if I put any more in it, then it becomes all about me and what I'm doing. And I don't want it to be about me and what I'm doing. I want to stay on that text and on that person's intention what they wanted. It's, it's different. You know, it's very different 
when you contrast the fiction and the nonfiction, because for nonfiction, it requires a great deal of humility to walk in someone's shoes and not let your foot stretch the leather, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, I've done a lot of other things that are historical fiction. So yes, you're getting a lot of history out of it, like Bernice McFadden's two books, The Book of Harlan and Gathering of Waters. Both are just laced with American history, African-American history, World War II history. They're beautifully written. And in those cases, I have so much more freedom to create more colorful characters, to give you something that will make you see who these people are. I want you to have an image in your head. And I've had a couple of those recently. Michelle Moore wrote The Cigar Factory, about the black and the white workers in the cigar factories in Charleston, South Carolina. And she's very specific about the fact that her white family, when they're at a party and they're all together, they all sound like the black folks in Charleston. And we don't want to talk about how intricately connected the laborer life is in the South. But she said it's, it's unbelievable. It's almost indistinguishable, the sound of the speech. And she wanted me to do that, knowing that she might be skewered for it. Silvery droplets formed against the window screen. The only light challenging the darkness came from the gas lamp on the corner of Elizabeth Street. You always said Charleston will ever change, and that it didn't matter so long as they never sold off to Magnolia for some steamer because you'd refuse to work below deck in a boiler room. Well, brother, I wouldn't be surprised if you were part of the very last crew to sail across the Atlantic with a load of Sea Island cotton to sell to England. I wouldn't be surprised one bit. Oh, Charlie, may the wind be at your back, she said softly. Who'd have thought that this would be how you'd return to the motherland? It's so American. It's so African-American, but it's not just African-American, which is what drives me crazy. African-American history is American history, and um, we still haven't quite figured out how we move off the, the shelf, marked African-American literature, fiction, whatever it is, and just integrate that into American life. Yeah, that's the work. That's the work. That is. It's one boat, and we have to get in it together. And we figure out we're rowing in one direction. Yeah. I do believe that some of the people who are doing that most effectively are sci-fi, speculative fiction authors, fantasy authors, because they're always writing in allegory or, or using metaphors for things, but not necessarily using this is black and this is white. N.K. Jemison, that fifth season uh, trilogy, does that. Basically, she's created a world where things are so unstable that we have to learn to create community. We have to for our, for our own survival. And the communities that begin to come together need people of all backgrounds to contribute. So there's a huge lesson metaphor in that. Yeah, you're not the first person I've heard say that. Tell me, how did you begin to narrate audiobooks? You know, it was the answer to a question I had been asking myself. When I was growing up, my parents always had community service. There was always something that we were doing. And I got to New York and I thought, well, God, this feels so strange. I'm not doing any kind of community service. And I thought, well, gosh, I'm an actor. What can I do for anybody? You know, I'm not going to go door to door and do Shakespeare monologues. 
I decided, well, I could read for the blind. And I was I was coming out of a hair appointment one day. <laughs> And it was right across the street from the Lighthouse for the Blind. And then I had a little epiphany. I said, well, I'll do that. Went home, called them immediately. When do we ever do that? Actually go home and follow through. I actually followed through, called them. And they said, well, you know, we don't really use actors in that capacity very much. But why don't you try American Foundation for the Blind? And then I called them. And they said, well, we like your voice on the phone. Why don't you audition for us? Can you imagine anything being that easy? We like your voice. Come on in. No. I, I auditioned, and I was promptly rejected. <laughs> oh. Um, and they told me, well, you know what? We'll coach you on what it is that we need, how we need you to do this, and we'll have you audition again. And then I did about six months later, and I was accepted. But can you imagine? It started out as, a, <laughs> as an epic fail, <laughs> total epic fail. How did that become a career path for you? I was working there, and I would listen to the people who had worked there who were actors, who were well-seasoned. I'd stop by their booths, and I would listen, and I would learn from them. And one of them was Suzanne Torin, who's brilliant I love actress. her work. Yes, she's brilliant. I consider her my informal mentor, and I learned a lot from listening to her. And she whispered in the ear of a Claudia at Recorded Books and said, you know, I think you should hear her. She's good. And I got an audition. I got my first book, did well, got a second book, and it was Cane River, and it won my first earphone award. Augustine Metoyer was the most famous of all the gens de couleur libre. The closest she had ever been to Cane River royalty before was her godmother, a free woman who had married into that famous family. I wanted to go inside. Old Bertram went in for a few minutes and took communion while I waited. Suzette was sorry her mother had never seen St. Augustine, that she and old Bertram were the only slaves who had been allowed off the plantation. Just do your work, Suzette, Elizabeth said. We have ten to feed this morning, and I still have Mademoiselle Orleans' birthday supper to make. Mamselle promised to leave some of everything on her plate for me tonight, since it's almost my birthday, too. Elizabeth said nothing. That was the transition from reading for the blind in the National Library Service to commercial. And that's how the narrator me was born. That's right, because you direct audiobooks as well. Yeah, actually, I was the in-house director at Talking Books, which was the commercial arm of the American Foundation for the Blind. They have uh, three divisions. They had an educational division. They had their Reading for the Blind, the National Library Collection Reading Division. And there was a commercial division. And so I was in-house. And I did the direction for celebrities, for authors, and also for about half of the Harper books because we had a contract with Harper. Um, so they're just good books read by good actors. And you start listening very intently. I started listening to other actors and making notes about, wow, this one's really good and that one's good. And I built up a little casting pool of people who just had it going on. So I did that for a few years. And then they closed in 2009. And I guess I, I became a free agent, uh, so to speak. Uh, and I do, I still direct. I'm in the booth much more so than I'm on the outside of the booth, although I really enjoy both. And I did, I did some directing when I was at Yale Drama School, so I felt like I had some legs underneath me. Uh, it's such a good program. You really can't walk away from it without 
having residual skills, not just the, the one that you went there to get the degree in, but other things as well. Going from acting on stage, for example, or I know you've done television, mm -hmm. but acting with your full body and then going into the booth and just acting with your voice, what adjustment did that take? It really does. It requires an adjustment because so much of what I would do that was gestural, the way you wave your hand or bring your hand up to your chest or touch your face or your hair. And also anything that even flits across your face is caught by a camera. All of that has to find an exit from your body on voice or else all that gorgeous stuff gets lost. And sometimes it's really, really subtle, very nuanced. And I have to laugh. I just have to laugh because I'm, I got this wonderful note from Audible saying that I was going to be in the, the Hall of Fame and I was so honored and they wanted a picture and they put up there and, you know, everything. And it was funny because they described my voice as being so powerful. And that's, I don't have any self-knowledge of myself as having a powerful voice. When I'm in the studio, I bring it down and I'm much more <laughs> nuanced. But I think, I think part of that is that behind that is the theater training is still in there. Your relationship to space has just changed. That's kind of how I think about it. The size of things. Am I in a car sitting next to someone telling them my life story? Do I have to talk over a noisy engine <laughs> to do so? I kind of think of it a little bit like that. History isn't always easy to narrate. And if you take Hidden Figures as an example, it's a great book and you do a wonderful job. But it is so packed with information and parenthetical thoughts that actually when I was listening to it, at one point I thought, my God, how did she just say that sentence so that it made sense to me? It was just so packed with detail. Nearly every high-performance aircraft model the United States produced made its way to the lab for drag cleanup. The engineers parked the planes in the wind tunnels, making note of air-disturbing surfaces, bloated fuselages, uneven wing geometries. As prudent and thorough as old family doctors, they examined every aspect of the air flowing over the plane, making careful note of the vital signs. And I realized, you're giving me the story. No matter what you say, no matter the density of details, I always get the story from you. Oh, I'm so glad. That's what I shoot for. I'm never really positive that I've done that. So to hear it, it means a great deal to me. Thank you. How do you do that? I always have a person sitting there with me. I never forget. that, And I literally, I, I image that person listening a foot and a half away. And then I care about whether or not they get what I'm saying and the point of what I'm saying. It has to matter to the narrator? It has to. Did you get that? Is that? Was that clear? Did you understand it the way I did? Because there's so much satisfaction if you get what the author said. So I think it's, I care a lot, <laughs> is one part of it. But the other is that I never, ever want to forget that there's a person right there that I'm talking to. I've got my bass ale, and they've got their bass ale. <laughs> We're sitting at the table, but we're having a conversation. I know this is going back a little ways, but you've done sweeping histories as well. And I'm thinking of Isabel Wilkerson's 
wonderful, wonderful book, oh. The Warmth of Other Suns. I think that's my favorite nonfiction that I've ever done. I think so. I just can't find enough to say about that book and your narration of it. There are three main narrative strands that right. she uses to tell this very big and complicated story. Right. That that was something we really did debate about trying to figure out. It's nonfiction. You know, the, the basic sort of rule of thumb is you don't do voices in nonfiction. That's the basic rule of thumb. And then I'd say maybe over the last eight to 10 years, that's been switching. That's been morphing because I've had a couple of reviews critique me for not doing a voice in nonfiction. I thought, wow, that's a total swing to the left. But the rhythm of their speech as it was transcribed by, by Isabel Wilkerson, there was almost no other way to do it. You would dishonor their their way of expressing themselves to not give yourself over to that that cadence. So that was about honor. I had to honor them. None of them had been out of Mississippi, or Chickasaw County for that matter. There was no explaining to little James and Velma the stuffed bags and chaos and all that was at stake, or why they had to put on their shoes and not cry and bring undue attention from anyone who might happen to see them leaving. Things had to look normal, like any other time they might ride into town, which was rare enough to begin with. Velma was six. She sat with her ankles crossed and three braids in her hair and did what she was told. James was too little to understand. He was three. He was upset at the commotion. Hold still now, James. Let me put your shoes on, Ida May told him. These are subjects that really tear at the heart. And they yeah. have to have an impact on you because as a reader, listener, they have an impact on me and I don't live with them as long or as deeply, just yeah. given the circumstances. It's true. I do cry a lot when I'm in the booth. I learned many years ago, actually, narrating books that sometimes a wave of emotion will just overtake me. It's like a wave of water at the beach. It's coming at you and you just sort of stop and you have to let it pass over you, wash over you, and you just keep slowly walking forward. If it's a big moment where you have to just stop and deal with it, yes, you have to stop. I had a lot of those narrating Untamed State, Roxane Gay's uh, novel. I went through a period, I guess, kind of recently within the past four years, of narrating a lot of books about women who were victims of sexual violence. And that was probably the most devastating account. But to her credit, the way she wrote it, the book focuses so much on the role of family and recovery in the aftermath. Sometimes the idea of family is not the person that you're the blood relative of is one of the points that she makes, but they can be family and just as powerfully so. So I felt that there was a, there was a redeeming quality to it. And there have been a, a bunch of them like that. I don't know, I went through this period where I, maybe I did one and my audiobook publishing community felt comfortable entrusting me with that. So I've done a, a number of them. It's also part of a black woman's experience in our in the past century and a half. So doing those historical books, that does it is a subject that comes up a lot. Of course. So narrating speculative fiction and science fiction 
is like seeing another way for women to be in the world, however fictive that world might be. It is. It's a place of empowerment, of agency. These are, for the most part, the ones that I get to do anyway. They're women who have agency. They are women who communities look to for leadership. They are women who survive insurmountable odds, get up, brush themselves off, and keep walking. They are women who help make decisions that are going to be important for worlds, and in some cases, galaxies, depending on how it's and where it's set. There was a book I did. It just got renamed. It was The Druid Gene, but now it's Inheritance, Confluence 3. But the inheritance is another race of people wanting to own and, and hunt down this other race of people and control their bodies, extinguish them. But this particular character uses her mind to overcome and her ingenuity to overcome the odds. And that, again, that's a recurring theme in the world, but most definitely in the United States. You can't see me nodding, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> You're an audiobook. I can't see you nodding, but you are. <laughs> Well, Robin, there we're going to have to leave it, but it was such a pleasure talking Mm -hmm. with you. You too. It was wonderful. That was actor and Audiophile Magazine's golden voice narrator, Robin Miles. You can find reviews for Reflections by Rosa Parks, The Warmth of Other Suns, and Cane River, along with the many, many other titles narrated by Robin at audiophilemagazine.com. This has been Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening. <laughs>